Now, I wonder um, what your favourite TV series is at the moment. I've been hearing lots of very good things about The Crown on Netflix. Um, I haven't seen it myself. Um, my favourite, my all-time favourite, was uh, 24. And I remember a few years ago, I used to hope that I would be ill so I could miss a day off school and try and get through six or eight episodes back-to-back in one day. And uh, the, the, the thing that makes these series so great is that you can watch just one on its own, but actually it's very difficult to stop there because just watching one, you just get a kind of glimpse of the action. You don't see uh, how, the, how the kind of bigger pictures, the bigger storylines are going to play out. So that's why you watch two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, as it were. Um, and in our home group uh, this term, as we've been looking at the life of Joseph, we said actually um, a similar thing happens just looking at these episodes from Genesis. Because if we just look at one chapter or just one story from Joseph's life, we sometimes ask the question, what do we see of God here? Or you know, how can we see God working? How can we see God's love maybe? And sometimes the answer has been, well, we can't. It's really difficult. And you'll probably come to the same conclusion if you thought that about Genesis chapter 47, because I don't know if you noticed, but God is not even mentioned in the whole chapter when it was read. God's name isn't even mentioned once. So I think as we come to Genesis chapter 47, we need to slightly zoom out uh, in looking at just one episode and look at the bigger picture, the storyline running through the book. And the context of Genesis chapter 47 is God saving his people. And this morning we're going to look at three responses to how God works out his salvation plan. You can see those on this little uh, purple sheet. Um, That's what we're roughly going to be working through. And it would help me if you do keep Genesis chapter 47 open in front of you. But if you know the story or even if you don't, um, it all began back when Joseph had uh, two dreams um, whereby he saw his brothers uh, and his family members would be bowing down before him. Roll forward uh, a few years and that happens. Joseph is made the second most important person in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And his brothers, still at home, are now desperate. Uh, Famine is biting and they need food. So they go to Egypt to get some. And not knowing who Joseph is, as they go to, buy, bow, uh, go to buy grain, they bow down before their brother. The dream is fulfilled. But what was the point of the dream? Do you remember that? Why did it happen? Well, Joseph himself tells us when he revealed himself to his brothers the next time they come to Egypt. And he says to them, do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you to preserve a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So that's what's going on in chapter 47. God is quietly, faithfully saving his people. And that's why our first point this morning is that be confident in God's quiet, unseen work. So uh, if we pick up the story in chapter 47... Just look at verse 13. We're into year three of the famine, and it's really beginning to bite. We're told there's no food in the whole region, and the people are wasting away. That's the Egyptians and God's people, the Israelites, who at the moment are just one family, Joseph's family, 
uh, with Jacob as his father. They've moved to Goshen, as we had, as we had read to us. And it's easy to read these stories in the Bible and to gloss over what's happening, isn't it? But this is the third year of their famine. The people are wasting away. We prayed earlier for some of the troubled areas um, in the world. And I don't know if you've seen any pictures of the news of Yemen. It doesn't get as much press coverage as lots of the other places. But there's awful famine uh, going on. Some of it um, not self-inflicted, but being inflicted uh, on the people of that country. And um, I think it's always worse when you look at the children. Um, a, a few nights ago on the news, there was a boy, and I think he was seven or eight, but he literally looked like he might have been two or three years old. He was so malnourished. He was wasting away. And that's what's going on here in Egypt. The people are desperate. So what do they do? Well, uh, year three, they decide to spend their money. To, they, they go to Joseph and they buy more grain. But by the end of the year... Uh, The grain has run out once again, and this time so has their money. What do they do next? Well, they sell their livestock, we're told, to Pharaoh, for whom Joseph is working. And not even just their livestock, all of their animals, their horses, their sheep, their goats, their cattle, their donkeys, all their possessions, they're getting desperate. The car's gone, the golf clubs, the skybox, the KitchenAid, even the KitchenAid. The children's toys, the wardrobes full of nice clothes, anything that's worth anything. They need to get some food. They need to get some grain. And they do. They get one more year out of it. And then they're in trouble again. So this time there's nothing left. They sell their land to Pharaoh and themselves to be servants. Look at verse 20. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh... The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. You know, it's an understatement to say that these are pretty tough times. But did you notice the verse that our passage ended on, verse 27? By the end of the episode, we're told that the Israelites are prospering. They've acquired property They're being fruitful and they've increased in number. God's plan is being carried out through the difficult times, through the quiet times, even though he's not mentioned. Back in the previous chapter, we're told uh, God has uh, told Joseph's father, Jacob, that this is the plan. They will be in Egypt and Egypt is going to be the place where God's people grow from just a family into a great nation. That's happening. God is quietly faithfully saving his people. And I think as Christians, it's easy to yearn for the miraculous, isn't it? That big intervention which would uh, no doubt bring my friend to faith or or no doubt just um, restore or revive my own faith in God. He seems a bit quiet. He seems a bit quiet at the moment, maybe. Some people we see around us seem to have a hotline to God, don't they? God's always telling them what he's got in store for them, what's coming next for them. And perhaps we don't feel that. God feels very far away, very distant. We really wanted him to tell us uh, which job we should go for, what job we should have got, but he was very quiet. We didn't know what we should do. So how should we feel? And I think Genesis chapter 47 shows us that we should feel confident 
Because just because we don't hear specifically that God is carrying out his plan, he is. There's nothing to suggest he isn't. And we're told that throughout the Bible, that God is working out his plans, both in our own lives, if we're Christians, and to save friends and family, and even those we don't know around us. There's a verse in Philippians which says this, being confident that he who began a good work in you will carry on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It doesn't always feel that way, but he is carrying out his work. And I guess there'll be some here sitting here this morning who would think, well, life's a bit harder than just God feeling uh, God being quiet at the moment or feeling God a long way away from me. I'm, I'm really struggling to get over a broken relationship, perhaps. A real sadness that I can't shake, a death in the family, a friend gravely ill. And I want to encourage you as well this morning as we look at God's word to be encouraged about God's faithfulness that he wasn't saving his people in spite of the famine, but rather through the famine, through this awful, awful time. That was the means that brought Joseph to Egypt, wasn't it? The reason he was raised to prominence so that he could save those people by carrying out his plan. That's the means that God is using to blossom the family, to grow it in numbers into a great nation. So if we are struggling, please remember God's faithfulness because God is just the same as he was then he's faithful to his people he's faithful to his promises and to carrying out those in your lives I think Emma shared last week that great verse from Romans that in all things in all things God works for the good of those who love him so we can take God at his word we can be confident that he loves us We can be confident he's working for our good. We can be confident that he knows what's best for us. Well, if our first response can be confidence, I think our second is to be grateful. To be grateful to be purchased by God's chosen one. And I think one of the dangers we can fall into is uh, when we come to the Old Testament, when we look at stories of heroes of the faith, we're told they're called in uh, Hebrews 11, people like Jacob and Joseph, we can think, okay, well, what do I learn for me? How did Joseph uh, respond that um, can teach me? And um, the problem if that's the first thing we do is we can end up with a sermon full of sensible advice. And it might be good advice, but it could be advice you could get from a newspaper or listening to a TED lecture or whatever. You know, we could look at Joseph and think, look how astute he was in his work dealings. I could learn something Uh, of that, of how I work in my uh, company, in my office. Oh, look at what he says about paying taxes. None of us should begrudge paying taxes. And they are themes mentioned, aren't they? But I think the best first question to ask when we come to the Bible is, what do I learn about God here? And the second is, how does this point me to Jesus? How does this point me to Jesus How does Joseph foreshadow what's to come, the greater Joseph, Jesus Christ? And again, we were interested in our home group. We picked up on some of these things. Joseph was sold for pieces of silver. He was falsely accused. He was arrested. He was shackled. 
He was left looking like everything was a massive failure. And yet, in spite of that, he knew that he was part of an amazing plan that God was using to carry out the salvation of his people. Um, And as we come to look at Joseph's plan, um, I was kind of thinking that... uh, on the face of it, it might seem a bit like when we see on the news um, all the migrants uh, arriving in, in boats uh, to uh, Greece and Italy and southern Europe, and they've often mostly come from northern Africa. And we see the boats, the ones that make it, um, you know, either massive inflatables, which have got way too many people on, or rust buckets, which are maybe 50 or 60 years old. And then we hear the awful news of ones which have sunk, and we hear about the people... A wicked men charging, you know, thousands of pounds, taking advantage of these people's plight, of their hopelessness, of their um, need to be rescued and exploiting them. And we can think that Joseph seems to be doing a slightly similar thing here. The people have got nothing. They've lost all their possessions. And what does Joseph do? He makes them servants. He makes them servants. But I'd suggest rather than Rather than that, um, if Joseph was uh, going to be one of those people um, helping the migrants escape uh, uh, their, their plight in northern Africa, he would be providing them with an unsinkable ship, which is God's plan that he knows that he's doing for their best interests. Did you notice verse 25? How do the people respond to being in bondage? They're happy about it, aren't they? They're joyful. They say, you've saved our lives. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. And that's Joseph, not God. The people are so grateful because they know that they were desperate. They know they needed saving. They had nothing left to give. They'd given it already. And yet Joseph gave them life, didn't he? He returned their land to them. He didn't even just give them food. He gave them their land and he gave them seed. He gave them the chance to prosper even. And I think the fact that they're they're asked to give 20% back to Pharaoh hopefully seems a pretty generous tax, I'm sure, compared with what many of us here are paying at the moment. But Joseph hasn't let power go to his head. He hasn't become corrupted No, this was the plan all along. Remember when Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams about the uh, seven fat cows being eaten up by the seven thin ones. He says to Pharaoh, what you need to do is make sure you put someone sensible in charge who's going to look after the grain in the good years so that there'll be enough during the bad years. And Pharaoh says this to him, since God has made all of this known to you, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. All authority in Egypt is given to Joseph to enact a plan that's going to rescue the people, that's going to save them. Jesus Christ says of himself, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. And he carries out a rescue plan that's far greater. The salvation of his people by dying on the cross. And yet the language used in the Bible is just the same, that Jesus purchases his people. Did you know if you're a Christian, you're purchased by Jesus, you're owned by Jesus. He shed his blood for you. The Bible says we are not our own, we were bought at a price. 
but it's not for exploitation, it's for salvation. Just the same as Joseph, he didn't kind of subject the people once they were um, slaves to um, being in some kind of prison chain gang or just responding to his uh, every whim, having people around him, you know, someone to fan him in the hot summer months, someone to run his bath for him. He didn't do that. See, their slavery was freedom for them, wasn't it? The return of their land, the chance to prosper. And if we're Christians, then just the same is true for us. We've been bought at a price, but it's for freedom. And thus the response for us should be the same as for the Egyptians in verse 25. To bow our knee in grateful acknowledgement and exclaim, you have saved us, you've saved our lives. So perhaps we've done that in the past. We, we know that we are uh, followers of Jesus. We've, we've, we've moved past that, uh, that moment of salvation, of bowing our knee. What next? And our final point this morning is this. Be faithful or be fruitful as servants of the king. And um, may I just say at this point, for those of us who are sitting here who wouldn't call ourselves Christians, I, I hope it's clear um, that that Christians shouldn't be anything other than humble people, knowing that we're servants of Jesus. And um, do forgive us and forgive me for times when we don't come across that way. Someone helpfully said that um, Christianity is simply one beggar telling another where to find bread. And it's, it's very true, and it's a really good analogy for this passage, I think. But just put yourselves in the shoes of the people. Because what would have happened in the first couple of weeks of the famine, um, if Joseph said, right, what you need to do, you've not got much food, um, you need to become uh, slaves. I think they'd have said, are you crazy? You know, we've still got a few tins at the back of the uh, shelves. It might be lentils and chickpeas, but, you know, these are tough times. We'll, we'll, We'll dive in. And then times get worse, and a few months later... They're asked again, they say, well, no, we've still got our savings, our bank accounts, we've still got that nest egg tucked away, and I'm sure things are going to turn around. Perhaps another year later, sorry, darling, we're going to have to sell your rings. I'm sure I'll get them back soon, but we've just got to get through this tough time. I don't think they'd have been happy to be made servants of Pharaoh until they realized just how desperate they were. They had nothing. They were hopeless. They were beggars who needed bread. That's why they're so grateful that Joseph saved their lives. And their response to that salvation is to say, we're in bondage to Pharaoh. Verse 25 again. That's their response. Joseph purchases them and gives them their freedom by giving them their land back and seed to plant. And they say, we are in bondage to Pharaoh. And I think to our 21st century ears, it probably sounds like a bit, like a bit of an oxymoron that uh, there's freedom to be found in servitude. But again, that is the language the Bible uses for followers of Jesus. Back in Romans chapter 6, it says this, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one you, are, you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. The Bible says that slavery 
as human beings is our constant state. That's the surprise. Not that, you know, we have this wonderful freedom and then we come to Jesus, if we're Christians, and we become servants. No, it says that before that, we still have a master, but that master is sin. We're still slaves. But when we become Christians, we change to have a master who loves us, who cares for us. We're servants of the king, but we're sons of God. Can you imagine what the people did, uh, having been rescued, having been given those seeds and their land back from Joseph? Well, I doubt they went back and sat in their empty sitting room on the floor and put the seeds away in their garden shed and said, oh, that was a, that was a close one, wasn't it? No, they'd have, you know, first opportunity, sown those seeds, done everything they could to tend them, to make their ground as fruitful as possible, both, I think, to provide for themselves and to make sure that that 20% they gave back to Pharaoh was going to be as big as possible. This was wholehearted labor, wasn't it? Being fruitful, faithful servants of the king. And um, I heard a very good talk a couple of weeks ago, and um, he, he was applying how we're faithful how we live as uh, faithful followers of Jesus. And he said, for some of us, that might involve a big uh, choice, making a big um, life change. And we've seen it here in HTC, haven't we? Um, some of the church family members have, have left their jobs to uh, retrain, to uh, become full-time paid ministers in the church. But that might not be true for all of us. So how do we, how are we going to be faithful servants? And um, the guy talking, when I heard this um, sermon preached, said it's, it's making a thousand conscious choices to be faithful. A thousand conscious choices to be faithful. And uh, if you uh, pick up your purple sheet, I'm not going to go through them now, but why don't you take this home? Because on the back, I've just put a few questions that you might like to think about, perhaps this evening as you're getting into bed, just as you turn off the light, it will take you five minutes to think how you can decide to be faithful for God. But it is, isn't it? It's everyday life thinking, uh, am I going to invite my friend along to one of these carol services coming up? Am I going to invite my neighbour with the children to a Chris Stingles service? Am I going to reach out and show uh, kindness in some way, to that person down the road who I know is struggling a bit or is lonely. Am I going to be faithful to King Jesus? Let me pray.